the Birding Life podcast is back. I finally managed to update my laptop so I can record without lagging, and I'm excited to be back. Season 6 was a bit of a short season, but hopefully season 7 makes up for it. This week's guest is one of the coolest people that I've ever had the opportunity to meet. I'm pleased to welcome Bart Falkins to the show. In this episode, we chat about music, splashy fin, and of course, birds. Bart is a fantastic storyteller who will draw you in with his warm personality. To use a South African term, Bart is a lacquer oak. Bring your life to your garden with Westerman's Wild Bird Seed. A delicious seed mix attracting a variety of wild birds to your garden. Find it at various pet and lifestyle retailers across South Africa, online and in-store. Westerman's for the love of birds. My name is Adam and this proudly South African podcast is your weekly source of news about birds, birders, destinations, conservation, gear, books and anything that we think birders would want to hear about. So, welcome to the show. In this episode, Bart talks about a trip that he did to Namibia last year. After hearing about this amazing birding destination, I'm sure you'll want to plan a trip to the country. If you're looking for the best accommodation that caters for the unique demands of birders, head on over to the Namibia page on our accommodation directory on our website. You will be spoilt with choice, with fantastic destinations such as Sanfontein Lodge and Nature Reserve, Arabo River Lodge, Aloe Grove Safari Lodge, Don Fulian Lodge and Shameto River Lodge on the edge of the Okavanga River in the Caprivi Strip. Wherever you decide to head in Namibia, we have you covered. There's a link in the notes to the show. So let's get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. So the Birding Life Podcast is back, been a little bit of a break. Uh, we've had technological challenges. I had to upgrade my iPad, had to upgrade my earphones, but it's good to be back. And I couldn't think of a better guest to have on the show than today's guest. So we're having a chat today to Bart Falkins. So I want to welcome you to the show, Bart. Hey, good evening, um, Adam and all the listeners. So we're going to be talking a lot about birds. And one thing about Bart, he's an adventurer. Uh, he, I've met him on a whole lot of different Twitches when I've done Twitches. But before we talk about the birds, something I, I learned about you the other day, Bart, is I saw that you were posting pictures of the Splashy Fen Festival. You know, people were coming and swimming in your pool. Or when you can talk, you can tell people about that pool we're talking about in a moment. And I learned last week that you were a little something interesting about you is that you were actually one of the founders of the Splashy Fen Festival. So tell us about that. Yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah, you know, as a, life is an adventure, and I'm here to explore it. I've been exposed to music um, through my dad and friends. We learned to play the guitar as youngsters. And in Marisburg, I, I worked as, as a forester in the Consula Conservation Planning Division, in um, Peter Marisburg for the Department of Forestry. And in the late 80s or mid 80s, there was, we were going to merge with the Natal Parks Board, as it was called at the time. And I chose then, I thought that they might not need um, conservation planners as a, sitting in an office. They might discard, shed a few um, staff members, but I knew they definitely needed managers up in the Drakensberg and out in the field. So I chose to move to a place called Cobham, which is lies just outside Heimville. 
up in the Drakensberg, an area of about 50,000 hectares. And the Sani Pass runs through that. So I was based there. I made friends in the area, played a bit of tennis and started my canoeing. And then I was on the WESA committee, the Wildlife Environment Society of South Africa committee in, in Heimville, Underberg area. I was part of the bird club. We'd go to bird club meetings and um, we'd share our experiences like once a month at the Heimville Hotel. And then I was invited out for dinner once by the farmer, Peter Farrar. He was the owner of Splashy Finn. And um, his daughter invited me out and we got going out in a group. And, and during that evening, Peter suggested uh, the idea of hosting a music festival on his farm, Splashy Fen. So I mulled over it a bit that evening, and maybe it was the wine, maybe it was the mushrooms talking. Uh, no, they weren't trippy mushrooms at all. Um, we, I said, you're on, that sounds like a great idea. I went back to Maritzburg, spoke with the folk club, and yeah, we got the ball rolling, and we started Splashy Fen in 1990. October 1990 was the first Splashy Fen. So I was already a resident in the area, working area. I resigned and then we put on Splashy Fen number one, October 1990. And now it's probably one of South Africa's, if not South Africa's foremost music festival. That's really a, such a cool story. We were chatting before about the fact that you play a little bit of a guitar. So what music are you into? Look, when you play guitar and you don't want to progress too much, it's just a, an acoustic guitar. I play, I guess you can call it folky stuff, Cat Stevens. I love Paul Simon. There's Bob Dylan, Neil Young. The newer stuff, I try to learn a few songs here and there, but yeah, it's I'm not very good. So I'm a bit reserved when it comes to playing in front of people. So not one of my talents uh, seem, seem tend to go off key, I think. And so instead of... Me playing up on the stage, I employed people and we put people on the stage at Splashy Fen, <laughs> including people from overseas. Like um, in 94, we brought across Sean Phillips from America. And then in the year 2000, we hosted the Hothouse Flowers. They came out from, from Ireland and that was just a mind blow for, for me. I still get goosebumps thinking about it that we brought out the Hothouse Flowers to our little um, well, maybe not little at that stage. We'd had over 10,000 people at the festival. But yeah, Hot House Flowers came to our festival in year 2000. And this year you guys had the famous Inglovo Youth Choir, which I heard was absolutely amazing. Yeah, it was it was a wow act. I'm not involved with the festival anymore. I just live next door. I'm the neighbor. And everyone tra traipses through the and uh, drives through my property to get to the festival. But yeah, the Inglover Youth Choir were just amazing. I'd, I'd heard of them. I didn't know what kind of music they played, but they were wow. They were just a ball of energy, and it was just phenomenal to see them dancing and singing on stage. And the crowds were also blown away by them. Everyone was just talking about how what an act they were. I've always been curious. You know, obviously, uh, when I first started following the Splashy Fin festivals more from the music side, which uh, I mean, I've always, I've grown up with music. You know, we talk about music, why I enjoy talking about music on the show. It's a big part of my life as much as I enjoy birding. You know, I still remember growing up, my 
you know, having these bras in Ladysmith and, you know, my my folks had this huge record collection and playing the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all this awesome music that has really defined my life in so many different ways. But obviously, as my journey has progressed and I've started to get into birding, I've always wondered, you know, what is the birding like if you someone would come to Splashy Fen? Because obviously, if you stay there for the week, the weekend, and you want to walk around to the property, how's the birding at the Splashy Fen Festival? You know, so someone who's coming along says, I love music, but I also want to do a bit of birding. Are there, are there good birding opportunities at the festival? At this year's festival, I get goosebumps thinking about it. We haven't, the local farmers, some of them have got um, a vulture restaurant um, as a safe feeding place for vultures. And um, of course, they're, being a dairy and livestock um, farming area, animals die. And they put these animals out. And we had, gee, a flock, if you call them that, um, of vultures, cape vultures come over, of at least 50. And in amongst them too were our last sightings of the Amur falcons that were in the district. That was on the Sunday morning. And that was very exciting to see just all those. And I, I was sharing that with other people that was around me. And that was exciting to see. But a couple of years ago, on a small splashy fen camping event when with COVID lockdown, we actually, Heather and I, we, did, we led a little birding walk and someone asked about um, quail finch. And we did a playback, and funnily enough, about 10 quail finch just flew up from our feet. So that was quite exciting. But garden birds here for us are the Rhinek, um, there's Bok Makiri, um, birds that fly over and calling regularly are the great crowned crane. We have wattled crane fly over. Shell duck in the winter now, they call and we hear them regularly. The three sunbirds are the greater double-collared, the amethyst, and the malachite. Um, we rare, we don't see many um, gurney, we don't see gurney sugarbird here. We don't have proteas around us. But just this week, oh, it was yesterday morning. It was just a phenomenal day. I went for a swim in the river where all the splashy fenders go swim. And little half-collared kingfisher came flying past again. And some black duck flew up from, from the river. And then during that day, I got home and there was a brown-backed honey guide um, just in the Mchichi um, near the house here. So that was a new one for me around the house, the brown-backed honey guide. We've had owls, the spotted eagle owl, and we hear barn owl on occasion. Um, so, And then the jackal buzzard, of course, from our stoop, if we, as I said to a friend who came to stay recently, I said, you've got to go outside and look up in the skies. The birds don't always call, but you've got to look up. And lo and behold, we've got two Vero's eagles um, flying near Bamboo Mountain. And then we had a single um, bearded vulture as well over Garden Castle. So, so these are just some of the birds lying in bed once we've heard the national our national bird calling and we'd look out from our bed lying back looking up into the sky uh, across came two blue cranes it was just so exciting so that's some of the birding around here on splashy fen and on um at pondoki where i live next door yeah something i've always wondered you know obviously 
I have my garden list of about 70 odd species. And I've always thought about the fact that, you know, for me, coming to Underberg is always special because it's birds that I don't get to see all the time. You know, listening to the the species you get, I mean, surely you don't ever get, surely it doesn't just become something familiar. Surely it's always something that's exciting, like every single day. It must just be exciting, you know, seeing these birds because, I mean, you might see like a book McCary very often, but it's 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 a it's a an amazing bird to get to see just in your garden. Yeah, you know, the Bokmakiri is a beautiful bushrike. You know, it's part of the bushrikes. And um, we found a dead one in the garden once. And this was during a lockdown or somewhere around there. And another one, where we left the carcass, we left the bird, complete bird in the garden. And then next thing, there was another Bokmakiri and it came and attacked it, dancing around it, Stabbing at it like a, a secretary bird, you know, does with snakes with its foot just and claws, just stabbing at it and stabbing at it and plucking it. Eventually, it, um, the the live bok mercury made sure that the carcass was dead. <laughs> but it's it's a colourful bird and very vocal. Oh man, if you think uh, the bok mercury. Um, has one single call? No, no, no. It's a bird that confuses you. It's it's. Wow, <laughs> it's got varied calls all the time. So we're going to talk a lot about the birds that you've seen over the over the last couple of years, and you've seen some really special birds. I think of three specific ones we'll talk about, but what has been your biggest dip? I mean, I'm talking about, I know you travel all over. I mean, a lot of times on these twitches, Bart, you there, <laughs> and you really are, like I said, you are, the, you are the adventurer, and that's just part of who you are, which makes you so like absolutely fascinating, but what has been a bird that you've gone out and you've maybe put money into and traveled for, and you just have not got to see it? What has been your biggest dip? Oh, man. Um, I'm going to blame, or we're going to blame Cyclone Freddy for this one. Um, recently, I had to do some work up at up near Tsanin. And these white-throated bee-eaters turned up in, um, in Kruger. And we worked out that it was a two-hour drive from Machubaskluf to Palabora, and then at, at least three hours in the park to get up to Shingwidzi. So we drove up on the Saturday morning. I wasn't feeling well at all, but we forged ahead. There was a bird to be seen. And on the way, we saw just north of Mapani, we picked up a harrier, a female. We couldn't ID it, and it disappeared behind the bushes. We were looking for pallid as well. But Heather and I, we charged up. We threw. There was some rain. There was good wind and um, for harriers, it is, but maybe not so good for the bee eaters. And we sat there for, I think, four hours. Yeah, from 10 o'clock, the, these birds had last been seen at 9 in the morning on the Saturday. We sat there from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock, and then we headed out. <laughs> we dipped. We didn't see it. Then we finished the work on the Monday. The Tuesday, we headed to – we had three nights booked for Kruger. We headed to Olifants. There was been no report of, of these birds. Stayed in Olifants a night, Satara a night. We managed to pick up the pallid harrier near Satara. We headed down to Skukuza for a night. Friday morning, 11 o'clock. Man, we'd been looking for um, some other birds there. I can't recall now exactly. And um, 
11 o'clock, we come back into comms, rounds Kukuza, and there's report of um, white-throated beaters seen on Wednesday again. So we got in the car. We were going to leave the park that day and go to Nelspreit, but we jumped in the car from Skukuza and we headed north. Seven, six hours later, we got to Shingwidzi, five o'clock, sat there for half an hour at the site, and then, um, alas, no joy. The next day, Saturday, we sat the whole day up and down, driving around a little bit that we could, no joy. Sunday morning, we sat there till about nine o'clock, I think it was, and then we called it quits. And very despondent, we headed down, out through Palabora, and um, yeah, back to Nelspreit. So that was, I reckon, our biggest dip. I mean, we were together for the dip on the Redback Shrike, Adam, but um, yeah, I think that white-throated bee-eater was the big one. Eh? The thing about the Redback Shrike, which was frustrating, I'm not a birder who for various reasons. I don't twitch a lot. I mean, a lot of it's financial reasons and I can't twitch a lot. And I kind of decided that was one that was worth going for. Went up there and yeah, had all the expectations <laughs> and <laughs> we sat there for four hours and saw absolutely nothing. And and I think I think kind of like the, the fear is this, it's almost like uh, the biggest fear is that you go home and the next morning the report comes to the bird is seen. You almost like hope that there's no more reports afterwards. There's like a part of you that wants them to report it afterwards. And there's part of you is like, please don't let this be reported tomorrow morning because then there's kind of like the temptation to go up all over. But I mean, we were just driving up and down. If that bird was there that day, we would have seen it. Yeah, I know. It was um, it was crazy that. Um, so Heather and I left that Redback Shrike site. We headed south about 11 k's on and we found a shrike. I'll send you the pictures and you can mull over it. And it's very indistinct, but it's a possibility that it was the Redback Shrike. No tick for me, though. Um, um, yeah, but that's how it is. Yeah, we have all sorts of people listen to our show. Obviously, we've got people that are Twitchers. We've also got people that are just bird watchers who probably despise twitching and who would um, speak against it. Then we have people who have maybe never, who don't even bird, who just maybe just stumble across the show. So I want to ask you. You know, we you spoke earlier about life being an adventure, but what what is the thrill of twitching? I mean, you know, if 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 I, if I think as a person who if if I was a person who had no interest in birds, I mean, you're driving hours and hours and hours using petrol, which is not cheap nowadays, to go after one bird. What is the thrill of a twitch? Why do you chase after birds all over the country? Um, wow, it's. And maybe like getting that your first sighting of an elusive leopard. A friend of mine's just been to India and he's got to see the snow leopard. I mean, I think he's paid a lot of money. He's also a twitcher, but he's paid a lot of money to get across to India and that to get to see that snow leopard and the excitement of seeing that. And that's what it is for me. It's the excitement of seeing something new. It is exciting, especially these first records. There was a wood warbler recently, a white wagtail, and now this red-tailed shrike. There were first records recently. There was a sooty gull that we managed to pick up as well. So, yeah, these are first records, which are very special. I think that's, and as I said, it could be your first sighting of an elephant or even a giraffe, and you get you're overwhelmed by it. But it's just these, even these little 
passerines, these little birds with little feathers. I mean, the wood warbler is a minute little bird, um, smaller than a, a sparrow. And um, it was very exciting to connect with that. Um, <laughs> also, after having driven 933 kilometers to find it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, an excitement. And then there's a, the, the disappointment, of course, when dipping. And, but that goes with it. That just kind of adds to the excitement. Will we get it? Will we, will, will we be too late? Will it have flown? Or is it just gone to feed elsewhere and it's gone to the neighbors and never to be seen again? Um, yeah, that's, that's uh, twitching is, yeah, it's great. It's like maybe playing a riff on a, getting a riff correct, which you've been practicing for a long time and eventually you nail it. And then it come, all comes together. As always, the Birding Life is proud to be associated with Sarovsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. One of the ways that you can help us to keep putting out the content that we are releasing is by supporting our online shop. We sell optics, books, Westerman's products, and a whole lot more. Check out the shop on our website, www.thebirdinglife.com. If you need any help with any of the products, please don't hesitate to email us on info at thebirdinglife.com. We've spoken all about your present birding adventures, and but let's rewind right back to the beginning. Tell us about how this passion for birding started. Well, I was brought up in a family that used to go camping. My folks loved the outdoors. We went hiking, camping already when we, I'm a migrant, by the way, you know, like um, like a rough, maybe a male, maybe something like that. We landed in Cape Town way back when, and we went hiking up Silver Mine. We went camping at Clan William. I took a trip up to Rhodesia, as it was called in those days. Always, always outdoors and in the game reserve, walking, hiking, and so my folks instilled this love for nature. And I think my mom really triggered this love of birds in me. She wanted to identify all these different birds. I joined, I went and studied geology at varsity without success. You know, some of us just can't handle the maths. I eventually ended up at Forestry College down in Sarsfeld and down in George. And... Yeah, there was there were different birds down there, and then I was, from there, as a qualified forester, I was moved up to Maritzburg, where I shared an office with a bloke by the name of Ian Gordon, who most of um, our listeners would know, um, the late Ian Gordon, and I had to do field work with him. We were doing botanical assessments up in Duku Duku Forest, up on Eastern Shores, up at Sodwana. And I was really overwhelmed by how well Ian knew his birds. There was stuff. He, he knew the bird calls backwards and that. And this really triggered my interest, further interest in birds. And then he got me started on atlasing as well. I think it was perhaps in 85, 86, we started atlasing. And um, for that was for SAPAB 1. But yeah, and over the years... I kept contact with Ian because we both left Department of Forestry. I started Splashy Fen. He started a nursery. He worked for the ICFR in Maritzburg. But we stayed in touch and we ended up on a, 
the Burning Big Day team together with a few others, with Dave Rimmer. And, um, yeah, so that was fun. And then I went to see, he used to go visit Ian in, in um, Maritzburg and then up in Zuland a few times. And But, you know, funny thing is when, we start, when I started work with him in Maritzburg, he brought out a class photo, and that was from 1966 when we were in class two. And Ian and I were standing next to each other. We were in the same class in standard, in class two and standard one in, in Pangeni. How strange was that, eh? <laughs> yeah, so that's where it all kind of started. You know, that's where he triggered that, um, that enthusiast, his, his enthusiasm triggered it in me and my love of birding. And maybe also listing birds, because that's also, it's not just birding, it's also making lists now of birds. And unfortunately, um, Ian fell ill a couple of years ago, and he succumbed to his um, his his illness, unfortunately. Yeah, I must say, Ian was probably someone who shaped my birding journey in so many different ways. Uh, honestly, when, when I've first got to know Ian, you know, Ian was one of those guys that, you know, like I was joking, said you almost spoke about Ian in hushed tones. He was this guy who really, as a newer birder, I was absolutely blown away by his un, his his knowledge of birds. I mean, we'd got, I'd got birding when I first started. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember those days, it was a long time for you, but I'd like, you know, go and bird for like an hour and get like 15, 20 birds. And Ian, you're standing with Ian and Ian's just like ticking bird off, but this one on call, this one on call, pointing this out. And he just was this absolutely exceptional bird. And what I loved about Ian was he, you know, especially around the era of atlasing, he really had this desire, like he really enjoyed imparting his knowledge um, into uh, to help other people grow as birders. And yeah, he had an immense influence upon my life. And I'm sure... A lot of our listeners, especially those who are Atlas, uh, a lot of them would probably, especially KZN birders, would probably look back and speak about the influence that Ian probably had on their lives. Yeah, very powerful. And um, he was not only a good birder, but he was also a botanist. You know, we that's, it was also his love. And he was a phenomenal botanist. He, it was amazing. Just He could tell those flowers, the little grasses, the flowers, the herbs, and then the trees, of course, too which we'd been trained in. Uh, it was really, uh, it was exciting being with Ian and just going out with him. It was just so much knowledge he used to share with us. Yeah, I remember Ian, uh, maybe maybe I shouldn't say the story, but we <laughs> went birding up uh, Sonny Pass and um, at the South African border post, we, 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 I was going to take my passport, I have a passport, I was going to take my passport along um, anyway, everyone said, no, we're not going to go up. So I didn't take my passport. We got there. Then guys said, no, we're going to take a chance. We're going to go up. Anyway, so I think Ian had his passport and the other guy had his passport, but two of us didn't have our passport. So Ian goes to the, um, the South African border and he just goes to this guy and he speaks like fluent Zulu and he tells the guy, these stupid white guys left their passports at home. The guy like laughs and says, I just go past a bit of birding. <laughs> so Ian was one of those characters and he was like really uh, a lot of good memories with Ian. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I actually lived with him for a while too before I um, settled down and bought a house in Peter Marisburg. We lived up at Sadara, and it was always fun. You know, we used to also like the same kind of music. Look, I play, as you asked earlier about my taste in music, look, I play that kind of stuff on the guitar, but I like rock. There's Led Zeppelin and um, Queen, 
and there's Bad Company and all that kind of stuff, Jethro Tull, all that kind of stuff that I used to love too and still do. Yeah, I still, I still say there's all these conversations about the greatest song ever written. There's undisputed. I don't think there's any better song ever written than Queen Bohemian Rhapsody. I think that's the greatest song that's ever been written. And yeah, Queen, I mean, you just you were speaking about Queen there. Here's some really good taste in music. If you like, nice guy to go sit around the fire and put some music on because at least you've got good taste in music, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, we are, it's, it's great traveling in the car and turning the, turn the music up. Um, Heather and I both love the same kind of music. So yeah, it gets us from A to B. Um, quite enjoyably. Yeah, you were mentioning, so I, I enjoy atlasing, but I don't think if I'd started birding when you did, if uh, I had to try and atlas them, because I mean, I look at these pictures of the guys back then doing atlasing, and you had these like big charts you had to open. I mean, with bird lasso, it's easy. Those days, it was crazy. You had to like have a you have to be seriously brave to start atlasing those days. And I think it was it was probably quite inaccessible for a lot of birders. Yeah, you know. In my training, you know, we had to do map work at college. And so that was set. And in my in the office in Peter Marisburg, we worked with maps all the time. So for guys like Ian and myself, it was second nature to know exactly where we were on the map, how the quarter degree squares worked and all that. And, yeah, we got on with it, hey, uh, because we used to we – were fortunate enough to go into areas which wasn't open to – which weren't open to the public – like the Kentron Missile Range north of St. Lucia, between St. Lucia and um, Sodwana. So those were areas that had never been atlased. And so, and we were new at that. And new, and we, we loved it. And we got picked up birds there. It was fantastic. See, denims busted. Then they were called Stanleys. There were different lapwings, the Senegal, which was then called the Lesser Blackwing and the, and the Blackwinged, and just identifying by call, striped kingfisher, new ones, you know, for for KZN, for us. and But just limited to those northern regions. So last year you did a trip up to Namibia and was one of your adventures. You'd, uh, I was quite surprised that you actually pre-planned. This wasn't organized. It just happened. And you just happened to get a really fantastic bird that a lot of birders were paying big money to go up and you just happened to be there. I guess that's what happens when you have that adventurous spirit. So tell us about that encounter with that special bee eater. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I live with a thorough birder. That's how I can describe Heather. She is very thorough about everything. We planned our trip down to the tea. We were going, we were looking, my bird list was just over 50 possibles. And eventually, I think we got 38 of them for Namibia. Um, but we went up the east of Botswana. This was at the end of September last year. And we were staying at Katima, Mulelo, in that area. And we got the yellow-throated leaf love at the houseboat safari lodge. And we'd managed to nail a few others. And then while we are in Katima... There was news of this northern carmine bee-eater that turned up and it was en route. We had planned to go stay like 15 k's from where this bee-eater had been seen. So we were just crossing fingers and hoping that the bird would stick around. And um, yeah, so we ended up going down to Divundu and we stayed at Mahangu Lodge and we had booked our morning 7 o'clock um, boat ride 
and we went out with Basi, and it was just a phenomenal experience. I mean, there Basi puts this boat, his little tour boat, and he puts it against the river bank. So we're about sitting about a meter and a half from this little bank, sand bank, with all these southern carmine bee eaters flying in. And then he pointed out there's the northern, which had the blue chin. That was the only difference, really. A slightly different turquoise. But wow, it was just, it was a phenomenal experience that it was just, those bee eaters were just so, so close to us. And we could get amazing pictures. And then Basi says, well, oh, there's your brown-throated, oh, your brown fire finch just hopping around in the grass up there too. So that was a double bonus, you know, to get an extra bird there. But wow, it, we, we were there within like fourth or fifth day of that bird being seen. We got to see see um, the northern Kalman Beita. And that was um, at Nunda Lodge. From Nunda Lodge, we went out. That was just a wow experience and very fortunate for us just along the way. Now you spoke, you touched on there about those subtle ID features and it's always, it's, it always amazes me, you know, when I always feel a bit intimidated because, I mean, another one was that, that white wagtail the guys got at Sappy Stanger. I mean, I'm just thinking if I'd seen that bird, honestly, this might like, a couple of my, a couple of listeners might hear my skill level now. But honestly, if I'd seen that bird, there's no flipping way I would have said, oh, I'm looking at a white wagtail. I mean, and obviously we're talking about the red-tailed shark <laughs> up at Magnoni. I mean, there goes Adam Riley. Obviously, the fact is he's a world list is fantastic. But he goes past the bird, oh, there's a red-tailed shark. And it's it's amazing how these they 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 pick up the they pick out these finer details on a bird. It's just absolutely amazing. I mean, I'm I, I can't wait to see like a really special bird one way and be the person that finds it. But the challenge is, is that it's, you, you really have to, how can I put it? You almost have to get past just studying South African birds. And if you want to see these birds, you almost got to like just start growing your knowledge um, outside of our, our borders a bit with, with possibilities that could show up. Yeah. Adam, I don't know. I think if you know what's in your patch, you know what's common. Like you get to know what a wood sandpiper looks like and a common sandpiper and then eventually the green sandpiper. And if something else turns up, you know it's not one of those three and it could be something special. Then you know you got to, you're on the alert. And fortunately now we've got digital photography and um, we can zap a picture and we can send it off to authorities, to the, the knowledgeable guys in the in a flash and um we can get a response within an hour and you've still got the bird in front of you you know so about learning knowing what the other things are we got to know the differences that occur in the different birds like these ruffs going into and out of breeding plumage gee whiz and then there's a leucistic one that turns up <laughs> well white ruff um yeah, you got. I think we got to start at home. Know what's common in your local patch, so that you can pick up that white wagtail and think, "Gee, that isn't just a juvenile um, pied wagtail." Um, I think that's that's where we got to start. You know, you really got to know your stuff there, and don't just look and look at the different features. There was a bird that rocked up at Siokufle. Um, I think it was called the rufous-tailed robin, robin chat. A scrub robin, Rufin's tail scrub robin. And the only difference between that and the Kalahari scrub robin was the leg color. 
Now, who sees that? It was not pinkish, but grayish legs or something like that. Wow. I was fortunate to be able to twitch that because um, and I crossed fingers and stayed around for something like 33 days and I got it on day 32. But yeah, little nuances like that, that you have to be really sharp with, which, and if you don't know the color of your, the legs of your common birds, you're going to miss that when a different one pulls in. Yeah, it was something I said on a, a podcast, I think in last, the last season, I said that, you know, if I were to go back and start my birding journey all over again, what I would try to do is resist the urge of, the urge of traveling too far too quickly. I would almost try to, mm. you know, bird as much as I can in my local patch for the first three, four months, because I really think it's growing in the knowledge of what you see all the time that actually, like you rightly said, increases the, your, 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 improves your ID skills when you see something else. I mean, I always, a stupid example is this, is if you see a, like, obviously for us, a brown-headed kingfisher would be very common here. And if you see brown-headed kingfishers almost every single day through the bins, you start getting used to a brown-headed kingfisher, but you're also obviously getting used to the kingfisher family. So you go up to Kruger a couple months later, and all of a sudden a different kingfisher shows up. And you might not have seen this, this species before, but straight away you know it's not what you've been looking at, like you were saying. But because you understand the, the jizz and the, the shape of that family, immediately you're not trying to page through 800 species in your bird book. You straight away can narrow it down. So I think it's what you were saying. I think the more familiar we are with our local species and we take the time to to learn what we see all the time and not just to kind of like a lot of people just look through the bins. I mean, I was sitting today just – had someone doing some work in my house, and I sat down, and a flock, little flock of um, bronze mannequins came through with juveniles, and it was just an opportunity just to sit there and actually enjoy and, and just enjoy these birds. I mean, a lot of people get caught up, and then later on, a collared sunbird came, which is again is a common bird, but just having a look at this bird, just sat in the tree, looking through the binoculars, looking at a bird in my garden that I've seen a, like a hundred other times. But noticing now that the, uh, the, the, the length and the shape of the bull is a bit different to some of the other sunbirds I've seen. And, and it take, it's, it's all about taking the time to sometimes enjoy what is common so that it prepares you for when something that's not common shows up. Yeah. Um, like we've got some challenges with swifts, of course. You know, they're, all, they're just brown and blackish birds. And some of them with white chins, other, one with a white stomach in it. And to pick out... <laughs> the two, the common and the African black, you know, are quite challenging if the light isn't correct. And um, I've yet to master that one. Then we've also got one of the more challenging ones is the, are the pipits, because we've got a number of different pipits up here. And fortunately, the Nicholson's comes across onto our copy here during the winter, and he's the common one, and African likes the shorter grass. Um, compared to the Nicholson's. So, yeah, we've got to know the, these common ones first. So I'm quite interested to know, like you you were chatting about Heather being the super organized, like she organizes, like, you know, she's the person who puts the list together. I mean, it, that's really, for the two of you to be together, that's like really like a huge blessing. I mean, yeah, to, to not have to worry about the person you with when you want to go out and bird, but they actually are pushing you and maybe a little bit more competitive sometimes. Yeah, I don't need to get a pink ticket. I've got a pink ticket. <laughs> um, yeah, Heather and I, you know, it's phenomenal. We, It's just stunning to be able to be with Heather and we just bird together in, in the house. Here. She says, what's that? What is that calling? Did you hear the read buck? Oh, 
What was that called? And we go outside. Was that um, an, an eastern clapper lark? Gee, a few days later, we discovered it was a young African harrier hawk with a... <laughs> you know, that one caught us both out um, when the birds birds were flying overhead. And it wasn't, didn't, wasn't a lark. But she is so sharp with her calls too. So it's really exciting to team up with her and um, and be able to live together. And just, yeah, it's very exciting to just to be alive. And were you birders before you met? Or, or I know you were a birder, but were you both birders? Or did it happen later on, the birding part of it? No, we've been, Heather's been birding longer than me. Yeah, our lists have grown and... Um, to be able to share our birding experiences now, we plan our trips. We did um, that flock to Marion, and it was very exciting for us. You know, that was new territory for both of us. And, yeah, it was just, yeah, she's been birding for a long time, and she's had some good grounding. Her apprenticeship she did with some top birders in the country back in the 80s before cell phones, <laughs> where a twitch was a twitch where we didn't get a, a coordinate, GPS coordinate or something like that, which was in that area near that big syringa tree or something like that. <laughs> and she nailed it. So, yeah, I'm chasing the numbers down, you know. We're slowly whittling it down to down to we've got down to two figures now the difference between us we spoke about the fact that you are really an adventurer and uh, i think that's what i've you know we haven't even scratched half of who you are as a person on this podcast but i know like when in the next i don't know when you're going but i know it's quite soon you're on you getting ready for your next trip now tell us about that trip and what what are some of the birds where you're going and what are some of the birds you're hoping to see yeah well i've kind of dubbed it the Groot Karua. Um, we're going to start off in Brandtvlei. So there's three larks that I'm looking for there. Heather's been there back 30 years ago already and got the little larks that um, I'm looking for. And from, so that's the red lark, Sclater's lark, and the blackhead sparrow lark. And then we'll go head west from there down to the coast to look for the Cape Longbilled Lark. And we'll stay in, I think we might be heading towards the mouth of the Olifants, the estuary of the Olifants River, that area, Strandfontein. And then from there, we head south to Cape Town to do a pelagic, yeah, on from Hat Bay. And then from there, we want to, there's a few little Cape specials that I'm still missing, like the Protea Canary, Victorin's Warbler, and so we'll head east from there and maybe stay around the Albertini area and head up towards Herbert, Herbertsdale. We'll be in Wilderness for a few days for a college class reunion, 40th class reunion. And then from there, we'll hopefully try and find a roseate turn in Port Elizabeth. And after that, I think um, our, our wish list is, comes to an end unless um, something weird turns up along the way. And then, yeah, we'll, so it's about a three-week trip that we're going to be doing. We'll be leaving on the 27th. Uh, it's always fascinating to watch your adventures. But I think for the last question I want to ask this is, um, we've got listeners listening from all over the world, and you've traveled South Africa quite extensively. You've traveled Southern Africa extensively. For somebody from overseas who is looking for a birding holiday, 
why would you say that they should visit South Africa? I mean, we've all, let's be honest, we've got our, our weak load shedding, potholes, all the stuff that, the negative stuff about South Africa that a lot of people like to talk about. But the fact that you've traveled shows that you've you've seen the best of our country, Orsha. What, what makes this a fantastic birding destination that you should visit? I think um, infrastructure, even though it has some um, potholes in it, whether it be the roads or the electricity, there are potholes all over. Um, but birding in Africa, I think the infrastructure in South, South Africa is relatively good. We've got a high, high biodiversity and um, people speak English here. Further north, it becomes French and there's Portuguese and Mozambique um, and Angola. And so I think South Africa and Southern Africa, including Botswana and Zimbabwe and Namibia, are the um, places where we can communicate well. There's relatively good infrastructure, maybe not so good in Botswana, you know, to go into the swamps, but South Africa, it's, it's good. You can access most areas by vehicle. You hardly need a 4x4. Four four. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great just to get around. And fortunately... I can speak some Afrikaans, and so we can get even get by in the Karoo if we, if we have to. Bart, it's been really fantastic to chat to you. Uh, like I said, I could. Have, there's so much we haven't even chatted about. Maybe when you come back from the Karoo, I can. I'd love to come up and visit you this time. See this. See your farm. But it'd be great to chat. Maybe when you get back from the crew, we can have uh, part two and hear more about your your Karoo adventures. It'd be really really awesome to hear more about that trip. And yeah, maybe we, maybe we can con- get get Heather on the show next time also. Yeah, fine. That's yeah, that sounds great. Um, yeah, but not too soon, you know. Give us a little break. Um, let's recover from our travels, and then I don't think we'll be traveling again um, for a while um, this year. Uh, I think you could call it budget constraints, something that you also are familiar with. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, and so it'll be, I think, some local birding in KZN to maybe find an elusive swamp nightjar or an African broadbill um, and things like that. No, thanks, Bart. It's really been fantastic to chat to you. I can't wait to chat to you again. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you on the, the next Twitch somewhere or somehow. I'm sure you'll be there, but it'll be good to, good to see you again soon. Yeah, great. Thanks, Adam, and all the listeners. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity of just sharing a bit of what I do and um, yeah great cheers thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's show we really appreciate your support if you have any comments or feedback on any of the episodes feel free to drop us an email on info at the or send us a message on any of our social media platforms we would love to get to know you better so until next time be blessed and happy birding